Hello, boys and girls. This is Timothy Leary, and I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, the only hope here is WCBN-FM. If you're ever stuck in Ann Arbor, stick around with WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. <laughs> That's beautiful. Right on. Welcome to Living Writers. Uh, this show was taped, the, this interview with Gerald Shea was taped on November 15th. Uh, since then, we'd like you to know that uh, Gerald Shea's Song Without Words has been nominated for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize for Best First Book. Now, your host, T. Hetzel. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm so happy to have with me today in the studio, Gerald Shea. Um, welcome. Thank you, T. I'm delighted to be here. And, and I'll say we're taping this on um, Friday, November 15th, 2013. Um, may I call you Jerry? Sure, please do. Jerry, so you are in town. Um, you've been meeting with students. Uh, you've got a book out called a memoir mm -hmm. song without words discovering my deafness halfway through life yes and so and this is just out this year with decapo press it's published in april that's right okay and, and it's going to be published uh next year in france by uh, a large french publisher alba michel uh, at the end of 214 wonderful okay so and will that so then I, that will be translated into French, it's, then they are translating it into French. That's right, not me. Oh, <laughs> so well, but you are proficient in French. Uh, you're, you're yes, but living being a there. translator is something else. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I wonder how much, um, what role you'll play in I that. I think a limited role. I think I'll give them a free hand uh, in in doing that. And trust them. Absolutely. Well, I'll read it, of course. If I see anything egregious, uh, I'll, I'll let them know, and then I'll be corrected by them, and that'll be it. <laughs> Is that how it works? Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> well, bef without further ado, I'll read the short bio in the sure. back of the book. Um, Gerald Shea has lived most of his life in New York and in Paris, and practiced law in both cities for many years with De Beauvoir and Plimpton. Debevoise, yep. as and Plimpton, as a member of the New York and Paris bars. While at Phillips Academy, he studied with Dudley Fitz, and at Yale with Maynard Mack and Robert Penn Warren. At Columbia Law School, he was a Harlan Fisk Stone Scholar, was awarded 
the Jerome Michael Scholarship for Academic Excellence and clerked for Professor Julius Goebel, Jr., the preeminent legal historian of our time. He is published internationally in legal and financial journals, but Song Without Words is his first work for a general audience. He and his wife, Claire Dagramont, live in Paris, France, and spend summers on the North Shore of Massachusetts. Yes, that's it. It's my first book, and I might mention that it, I just learned yesterday that it, it has been nominated for the National uh, Book Critics Circle Award. So, nominated for it doesn't mean you get the prize, but having the nomination is nice. Yes, it sure is. It's nice to be in that circle. That's wonderful. Um, and and so, Jerry, when you you've been, let's let's talk a little bit about your your life, and yes. and because writing has played. A very critical role in 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 how you, I mean, it does for everyone. Like how we understand and how we process and and discover what our experiences are and articulate them. But writing for you has been even in almost in a way more critical through your your school life and um, and work <laughs> and now this book. Uh, so I'm being sort of mysterious here. Um, but I, I think we can, what, where shall we start? Shall we start with the we'll fact start at the beginning, <laughs> at the very beginning <laughs> when you were a young boy, when I was about six years, when I was six years old, uh, I came down with scarlet fever and, uh, I was very sick. I had the chicken pox too, and was sick for about four weeks. Uh, and when I went back to school, uh, after that experience, uh, I found the world growing slowly quieter. It wasn't a sudden quietness, except for one moment I remember in the in the classroom when the teacher said, Jerry, go to the Bob Boar and get a Bob Benser. And so I went to the blackboard, I figured out that word, and I came back with a red pencil. And she said, no, get a Bob Benser. So I went back and got a black pencil. That's the first real indication I remember of what was happening. And what had happened, what was happening is that the illness uh, damaged uh, seriously or destroyed, in some cases, the hair cells in the lower part of the cochlea, which pick up high-frequency sounds, so that those high sounds slowly disappeared from my life, including uh, consonants most of the time, including birds, flutes, piccolos, all the high sounds, the sound of water that we love so much. But it was a gradual change for me, and I didn't really notice it. All I noticed was that people were much quicker at understanding what others, at picking up what others were saying than I was. And I thought everybody else heard the same way I did, and that I was simply slow. So I spent a lot of time, most of my life really, I still do it, do it, but I know what's up, uh, com compensating for that. And it's it's almost like a translating of like the lyricals, as, it you is. Call, I, as you've termed them. Yes, I call those transitional words or non-words lyricals. It's my term. And all it's partially like, deaf. Like Bo like Babenser, that's or Babenser, whatever I heard. That's right, <laughs> or like dough the parchment eyes of life for don't compartment don't compart dough the parchment eyes of light for don't compartmentalize your life. So lyricals can be beautiful too, mm, mm. and that's my life. It's a lyrical life, and I, I I love it, but it's it's been a struggle on occasion, to say the least. <laughs> yes, and um, but but what's also striking about this your book, Jerry, Song Without Words, um, is that you're talking, you're writing about this experience and putting the reader with you sort of to experience some of the, 
some of these lyricals as you experience them in the moment, almost like in real time, like show it. So sort of the person can try to a- approximate to try to better understand what you were actually experiencing with this only partial pieces of language. That's right. And I've tried to take the, the, the reader into, into my life. I, I think that partially deaf people have an advantage at writing because we live in a world where uh, our lyricals are infinite. I mean, there's no limit to the words or non-words that we can, and wrong words we can hear. There's no dictionary of lyricals, and if there were, it would go on forever. So when we sit down to write, we're working in the finite vocabulary of the English language, and it's much, much easier for us to choose our words as we write. And in fact, it's tremendous luxury because you're living in a, a world that you can control, whereas uh, when you're listening to other people, it's largely uh, uncontrollable. I, I thought it was also interesting in the book, Jerry, when you said um, one of your your strategies um, during school um, was to actually keep talking like even if in relationships with people or with classmates or like at different times you would just you would talk because you knew what you were saying and it was fewer moments to that misunderstanding i was a happy child i loved to sing i still do um i uh laugh a lot you know every child has his own compensating strategies adults too to make up for what their deficiencies are so uh, I was very sensitive to loud noises, which is a sign of partial deafness, but I simply thought it was a sign of acute hearing. Yes. So I never suspected that I was uh, I was hard of hearing. And when I grew up in the 40s and 50s, there was simply very little testing going on. So and we'll find out when I was tested. It was much later in life. But as a child, that was not the case for us, for my generation, whereas I think today it's a much, more, much, much more common practice. And when I was reading Song Without Words, Jerry, it seemed like at some point in your early childhood, there had been sort of a cursory test, but one that you could, because of all the strategies you already had, whether it was um, picking up signals visually or reading lips or or whatever it was, you were able to pass. That that test was at the beginning of the first grade in September of that year. And I, I fell sick in, I think it was in November. So... Uh, nobody ever mentioned to me anything about my ears. I think the test was fine. It was after that point when you got sick that uh, that the problem uh, the problem arose. That's right. Right, and so it wasn't until you were in your thirties. I was age thirty three when I. We, we can get to that at any time you'd like when the test finally came about. Um, the uh, it was a mobile physical. It was that's that right. Is, is, but we can talk a little bit about childhood too and what that was like, if you'd like, before we get to wonderful. That. Yes. The uh, in grade school, I was a, a good student. Uh, I was uh, uh, always had trouble understanding the teachers, except as I write in the book, our wonderful elocution teacher, Mrs. Maroney, who had the name the same name as the angel, and uh, she was wonderful. I could I remember her still saying out loud. Abu Banadam awoke one night, unsurprisingly, from a deep dream of peace, because as an elocution teacher, she was audible. But for the most part, many things, many, many things, teachers were not readily understandable. But I was a good reader and a good writer, and uh, survived those years. And then I finally went away uh, to Andover uh, when I was, uh, I think, 15 years old. And there, it was very tough. It's a it's a it's a tough prep school, uh, but a generous one in the sense that I, in the physics class, I remember, remember having separate sessions with the physics teacher 
three hours a week after each class, we would redo the class knee to day, knee to knee, and he simply thought, as I did, that uh, I had a very special way of learning. Uh, I simply couldn't learn uh, in the classroom, uh, but I could learn if I was talking to the teacher directly. So, uh, and he could see how quick you were in those scenarios. Could see how I could pick up. Yeah. things, and, and he didn't mind giving me the extra hour. Every, think of a high school th- that would do that for you. So that was very special. Then when I went off to uh, to Yale College, um, I still remember the first day of a lecture, uh, and, I, and when uh, all the other students picked up their pens and pencils and started to write down what the teacher was saying up on the podium, and I had no idea what he was talking about. So I spent a long, a lot of time looking over people's shoulders, or uh, just uh, listening and watching and enjoying the day, laughing when other people laughed, and looking serious when they look serious, but not really getting it. And the, the words I like to remember are a lecture by a famous teacher named Charles Garside on Charles V, the emperor, the European emperor, uh, and he said something like, uh, would have said something like, Charles indebited the minstrel stills with this automatic million. When what he really said was Charles inherited his administrative skills from his father, Maximilian. Uh, so, uh, but I was happy at Yale. I was a singer. Uh, I had lots of friends. Uh, I was not particularly interested in being a star student. I was there for other reasons. I wanted to enjoy life and learn about it kind of by osmosis and by reading and writing. Um, and so Yale was essentially... Um, a happy time for me. I sang there. I sang in the Whiffenpoofs, which is a senior group there, as many people here at Michigan know. Uh, you do that in your final year. And uh, I could never hear the pitch pipe. Uh, I always, would always have to wait until the others started in, you know, a split second to get the to get the pitch. But I knew all those low notes, and I have a pretty good voice, and I my pitch is good. So uh, I just can't hear all those high sounds, uh, tones and overtones. And once again, with the pitch pipe, I thought it was a circumstance in which uh, I simply was slower than the others, and they were, I don't know what, better musicians uh, than I was, even though I could sing just as well as they could. It's it's an incredible um, thing to actually keep thinking of yourself, though, Jerry, because I'm struck by the image of you sitting in a college classroom and... um, Watching everyone else take notes, and then but because seminar I, rooms were better. It was the lecture halls that were the killers. But but what I don't—that's what I think is like at that point. Like you, you really thought, oh, I'm—I really don't get it, and everyone else c- gets it. That's right. I thought. Well, I thought that everybody else heard exactly as I did, and they could simply translate their lyricals much more quickly than I could. That speech for everyone was an imperfect exercise, and. It, a lot of the understanding was left up to the brain, and that part of my brain just wasn't there. I, and I guess it's like, it's just something and I felt, you can't I felt under- to some extent I didn't belong at the university. I, I, I was worried about that, but too happy there to really worry about my intellectual capacity. My, my grades were pretty good. If I really worked very, very hard on the course, I could figure it out and do well. Um, By doing the but, reading, for example. Sure, doing the, and, and the writing, up, too. And the, and the, the writing, writing is up. a key way to get to the teacher. If you can write well, uh, listen, often, a listen, teacher students. Will, <laughs> often a teacher will overlook, even even in history, let's say, or in French, French, which I never understood because I can't lip-read in French, but we'll get to that. 
Uh, a teacher will overlook an awful lot if you can write well. That's why all you students out there should should focus on your writing because it's a tr- tremendous advantage, both in school, both at the university and in later life when you're working in the rough-and-tumble world. If you can get your thoughts down coherently and, st- and stylistically, it's a major advantage in life. So don't neglect that part of, of your work or your head. Voila. <laughs> and I'm not, Jerry said that on his own. He was not, I was, <laughs> did Absolutely. not ask you to say that. Let's take a short break. Sure. Um, today we're going to, we are hearing songs that um, Jerry picked out for the program. Um, his book, Song Without Words, Discovering My Deafness Halfway Through Life. You've got living writers. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Gerald Shea is here, and we've got Tex Engineering um, behind the glass. Jerry, that song that you chose um, was Beethoven. Can you tell us a little bit about... Well, that is Beethoven's third piano concerto, which I find um, extraordinarily beautiful, and... uh, which I heard really for the first time in my life after getting hearing aids completely because I could hear those high sounds of the piano and the high sounds of the orchestra as it came in over the piano repeating the melody. Uh, and I have, there's a special place in my heart for for Beethoven, of course, although I'm not sure Beethoven, if if he were alive or if he's somewhere up there in musical heaven, would necessarily <laughs> appreciate that, but I certainly appreciate it. Uh, because he, of course, uh, went went became profoundly deaf and was becoming deaf most of his adult life, I think, after about the age of 20, 21, 2, or 3, something like that. And uh, Beethoven suffered from the same problem all of partially deaf and maybe most deaf, profoundly deaf people do, which is tinnitus, which is sounds in the ear, lo- which I call locusts in the book. Uh, it drove him almost to despair. Um, that, together with the fact that he couldn't hear other people talking to him, he en- ended up using conversation books where everybody would write down what they were saying. Um, 
uh, was a great, great loss for him, but music saved him. And it, I think Beethoven, Beethoven, I suspect that Beethoven could always hear some music, but what really affected him dramatically was the fact that he couldn't really hear speech anymore because uh, speech is much more precise than music. Those consonants I'm talking about are very, very precise, and you need acute hearing to understand people well. And if your hearing is bad in both the low and high frequencies, it's a terrible dilemma for you as a communicative human being. But the music saved him. Um, and Mendelssohn had something interesting to say about this, too. At the beginning of the program, we heard Mendelssohn's songs without words, from whom I stole the title. <laughs> and when somebody asked Mendelssohn, whether, a friend who was a writer, whether he could put lyric, lyrics, lyrics to song, song, his first song without words, Mendelssohn said, no, please, because... Music already has its own definite message, and it does, and for the partially deaf, and for Beethoven too, it is a profound relief from the struggle of hearing words to listen to music because its message is so much, in a way, more beautiful and at the same time so much less precise, so you don't have to work to get it. And fortunately, Beethoven had this great talent to boot, uh, which enabled him to enrich all of our lives, hearing and partially deaf alike. And you choose um, at the beginning of Song Without Words to have a quote by Beethoven as one of the uh, sort of the, the guiding lights of the book, Jerry? Yes, that's right. Uh, would you like me to read that for you? you? Okay, this is Beethoven, not me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a translation of Beethoven. Uh, by ordering me to spare my hearing as much as possible, my intelligent doctor almost fell in with my own present frame of mind though sometimes I ran counter to it by yielding to my desire for companionship. But what a humiliation for me when someone standing next to me heard a flute in the distance and I heard nothing, or someone heard a shepherd singing and again I heard nothing. Such incidents drove me almost to despair. A little more of that and I would have ended my life. It was only my art that held me back. It's interesting because here he's talking about the sound of, of a flute, and the sound of uh, of a shepherd singing. Uh, and he's focusing on music there, so clearly music was also uh, fading away. But if you look at his biography and his Heiligenstadt Testament, uh, the thing that he wrote when he was very down, uh, much as he was missing the fading of music, I think it was the fading of uh, uh, companionship, what he calls uh, yielding to my desire for companionship, that... Uh, made him so depressed when he was at his saddest. And and it reminds me of the place in, in your story, Jerry, in your memoir, when there's a moment when you're at work and um, you say something that, like you you just don't want to live it. You're exhausted. You really don't want to live well, anymore. The, it's, it, after... after uh, College after Yale, I went to Columbia Law School, and I realized at, in law school, all of you students out there know that it's a great struggle to do well in graduate school. For me, undergraduate school was not a time for struggle; it was a time for fun. But law school was different. And what are you going to do when you're sitting there and you don't understand what the teacher is saying? So I developed a technique of writing down all of my lyricals, uh, uh, and then I would take them up into my office. I was working for Professor Gerbel, the legal historian, eminent legal historian, and I had an office of my own, and I, thanks to him, and I would uh, finish his work around 8, and then from 8 to 1 or 2 in the morning, I would tra I would reread the case and translate my lyricals into English. And 
go through the exercise, which I thought everybody else did immediately, but which took me hours. And that exercise proved to be great. I mean, I finished very high in the class as, as my own greedy self. Once it studied the law because of the beauty of the law, but I was really worried about getting a job, which I think is the wrong way to be. If you really think about the things you're studying and the substance of the uh, of of the work itself, the, the the grades will come automatically. And to some extent, they did for me, me too. I loved doing that, uh, but I was also worried, so I worked very very hard. Graduated towards the very close to the top of the class and went to Deborah Wars in Plimpton, one of the uh, uh, eminent preeminent New York law firms. The the lyricals that exercise I just described is not going to work in the real life because the stuff of a lawyer is really the ability to sit in a room and pick up the points that are being said and negotiate a transaction um, if, uh, to get the greatest benefit fairly f for your client. But if things are passing you by, you're not going to be able to do that. And, and um, I don't think I ever really failed a client, but I was at a, at a talking at the firm a, a couple of months ago, and I said, uh, I guess it was at a book party in New York, and the general counsel for the firm was there. And I said, well, I, you know, I don't think I really did any 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 disservice to our clients because of my problem. And then I said, but in any event, I think the statute of limitations has expired. And he looked at me, shaking his head up and down and saying, it has. <laughs> Thank goodness, yes. Well, so, and so had this person read the book then, Jerry? He had read the book. And yep. so I wonder, was did you have a conversation with him about, did he then have a larger understanding of what was actually happening for you after well, reading Song Without yeah, so Words? Yes, many, many yeah. people in the firm have, yeah. Because I spoke at the firm uh, after that book party, and uh, everybody, I'd say most of the lawyers I've worked with at, at Depth of Voice and probably elsewhere, too, have read the book. So they have a great, much far greater understanding of me than probably I do myself, <laughs> I think. Um, the risk of memoir. <laughs> But so, as I say, the system was not going to work because uh, you can't really function very well. Uh, you can writing, but often in negotiations of contracts I'd written myself, I would get lost very quickly into the meeting. So at one point in desperation, I was in the bathroom and uh, I thought I was alone. I was taking some, I, I eventually got ulcers. So I was taking probanthine to get rid of the liquids in my system and my lanta to coat the stomach and Valium to calm me down and then self-prescribed coffee to counteract the Valium, and I was really pretty much of a mess. And taking the Jellusol one day, or my Lanta in the bathroom, I looked into the mirror, I looked terrible, and I said, I wish I were dead. And I said it, uh, sometimes we all get these thoughts, I think, and I, I thought simply to say it, I don't know how often I did, but I remember that moment, uh, it's kind of to dispel the danger of the un unpronounced thought, because when you say it, it sounds kind of silly, and it's a way to kind of it's get released. rid of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But as I walked out in the stall, the outside stall, going to the John, was the presiding partner of the firm. And I saw his very agitated, shiny black shoes going back and forth. And I thought to myself, oh, S-H-I-T, uh, because I didn't want anybody to hear that, of course. And, uh, but then the firm uh, began to wonder uh, what to do with this uh, lawyer who was, who was such a good writer, if I can say that, and yet seemed to f fall apart at meetings. So they came up with the only answer they could, which was to send me to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wonderful. What a great answer. So they sent me off to Paris, and I was ecstatic, uh, shocked, really, because that was a job uh, for the most talented of, of lawyers. 
and uh, they gave it to me. And I spent three years in Paris, which was a wonderful time. It was there I discovered that I can't read lips in French, even though my wife is French, but I know what she's going to say before she says it. Um, because you grow up reading lips, I'm an excellent re lip reader, and I found out later in life we'll get to that point. After I got uh, hearing aids, I went down to the New York League, as it was then called, for the hard of hearing, and took lip reading, wanted to take lip reading, uh, a, courses, a course in lip reading, how do you do it? And after uh, two weeks, the head person, my teacher was gone, the head person was down in Florida, summoned me in and asked me if I would teach lip reading at at the New York League because I was so good at it. And it's not because I was talented intellectually or otherwise. It's just simply because I've been doing it since I was a child. Uh, but I can't do it in French. That's one thing I learned in France. But it wasn't too, it wasn't a problem then because Paris in those days was an easy practice. It was, it was Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Ford coming over to buy an apartment or Tom Watson <laughs> selling his apartment to our client, Tom Watson of IBM, literally, it was he. And uh, simple things like that. So it was a wonderful time for me. Uh, the ulcers were still there, but occasionally I could have a glass of wine, and I felt much, much better by the time I went back to New York, even though uh, the problems were still very much there. And in French, they were even more so, more present. But I attributed that to my inability to the readily understand the language. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, Jerry, let's let's take a short break, and when we come back, will you read something for us from Song Without Words? Sure, I'd love to do that. W wonderful. Today on Living Writers, Gerald Shea is here. His memoir, Out with DeCapo Press, Song Without Words, Discovering My Deafness Halfway Through Life. We'll be right back. You are listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM. We would like to invite you to a special live edition, live and in-person edition of Living Writers at Literati Bookstore, Thursday, February 6th. This will be in addition to the regular Wednesday show, Thursday, February 6th at 5 p.m. Hope to see you there. Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. Um, and if you're just joining us now, I'm glad you did. Today on the program, Gerald Shea is here. Um, his memoir, Song Without Words, um, 
And we just, what, what did we just hear then, Jerry? That the Well, I couldn't hear it very well, even with my hearing aids. And by the way, I'm, I'm listening to you in a soundproof studio, looking at your lips. I have my hearing aids on and the microphone's on over my hearing aids, so I can function pretty well. But I couldn't hear much of that music because of the high notes. Um, I can in some environments if I'm listening to it. Uh, when I'm listening to that at, at very, very high volumes uh, or with, my, with earphones plugged into the, the set itself, I can hear that in, introduction. It's the beginning of the Lohengrin overture. And the same is true of the introduction to the Traviata overture to its very soft music, which I used to think was absolute silence. And when I got hearing aids, we'll get to that later, but when I got hearing aids I, and heard those pieces for the first time, uh, it brought tears to my eyes, much as the much as the Beethoven did too. When I heard the high parts of those sounds here, but here it wasn't just the high parts missing; it was the entire piece. So, and, and as I missed it, much much of it just now of the Lohengrin, um, and so that's on the that's the positive side of hearing aids and uh, the kind of the rediscovery of yourself or discovery, if you will. There's another advantage to lyricals, too, which I'll... And I'll read an extract from the book about that. No, just a, I think it's a paragraph. And it's about midway through. About midway through, yep. And it's, it's, about, it's about what I call lyricals, which, again, are the transitional language uh, of the partially deaf, the, the wrong words and the non-words we hear uh, uh, because of our imperfect hearing and that we have to translate into the words that were, were actually spoken. <clears throat> and now I'll start reading... There is poetry in lyricals as well, though they are not a formal language. They have an intrinsic, unconscious beauty, one that writers of our spoken tongue consciously seek in their own prose or poetry. They are the reverse of writing, such as James Joyce's The Bergenzoff, Bergamores, Bergagambles, Bergencelles, and Country Bost Burgons, in which the ver word variations that I call lyricals are planned, the partially deaf have, as I read one day after setting down my lyricals here, our morning signs with a U for the artists of a thirsty morning with a U. Our tie-tear wassails for Joyce's wassily boussolaire. Our clearisol sung for his clear also. There is a common grace at the artist's end and our beginning. We start with lyricals and Joyce leads us to his. Each of us has or is given his ultimate tongue. The poet's words become fixed as poetry, and our lyricals are transformed into a common prose. But I envy Joyce and other writers the luxury of their deliberate wordplay, for lyricals are not a conscious poetry, and when they arise in the commerce of necessity, they can be a hellish experience. Which you help the reader to understand by showing the lyricals that you experience throughout that's right. I want the reader to go through the same struggles that I do when I write those lyricals down. So I write them down in italics in the book, and the translate, transitions are also in italics, in italics as I come to the ultimate message. So the reader has to go through that same exercise with me. I had more of them in the book at the outset, but my editor cut them down, I think, to manageable proportions. Another thing, my, my editor was wonderful, Merloyd Mer Lawrence of DiCapo, Perseus Books. And some of the, I mean, I've talked all over the country about the book, and in Europe as well. We were in Dublin last week and in London last spring, and I gave a talk in Paris just a few days ago. Uh, the comment has been made that, uh, as to how much 
how, how little self-pity there is in the book. And I, the answer I give all the time is that, well, there was a lot of self-pity in the book, and my editor took it all out. <laughs> so all you writers out there uh, got to have a lot of respect uh, for your editors because they really are, at least Merloyd is one of the greats of, in our country today. She's about 78 years old and edits with a pencil and indeed is one of the most talented people I've ever known. And so these suggestions for that that Merloyd would make made sense to you as the writer. You were able to sort of take them in and yes. not to be defensive about them. I can't and... think of a single change that Merloyd suggested that I didn't adopt. Because you could then see it that way. You could sure. see the writing and see how it made it more like stronger. Well, she would never. I think a good, I don't know, this is my first book, but I think that one of her great talents is to express a thought in the margin. And then you can take that thought and turn it into a sentence or a paragraph mm. or a rearrangement, whatever, in your own words. And it's very, very easy to do. An editor doesn't have time to try to write the way you do, but she, she or he does have time to give you the idea. And then if you like it, and I did almost always, it becomes very easy to put that into your into your own language. And it makes writing easier because, after all, you're supposed to produce all those ideas yourself. If an editor can do that for you, reading the book along with you, uh, it's, uh, it makes it a lot easier. It did, doesn't happen all the time. I probably, probably say there are 20, 30 places in the book where her help was, was dramatically important. Because it's that, that sense of maybe there was a, a piece of connective tissue or so that you as the person who had experienced the story knew but maybe a reader wouldn't. Or maybe parts that even... Did any parts have to come out? Or was it mostly the lyricals, Jerry, that... Well, uh, there's a lot of... There's a history. This is a major point. I wrote a lot of the history of the profoundly deaf uh, and of the education of the profoundly deaf and of sign language in that book. That has all come out. It's about uh, 250 pages. But that will be published, I hope, as a separate book, an academic or trade book, Oh, perhaps by one of the university presses. I don't want to let that go away because there's a lot of important research that I've done that I think was should it, be published. And it was then um, originally within it was Song in the Without book. Words. We took it out because everybody really wanted the memoir. People were interested in me. And it's a mixture of genre. You don't want to have two genres in the same book, a book about the history and a memoir, because people who like memoirs won't like the history and vice versa. So the history came out, but it's not lost. It will ultimately be done. There was also an erotic chapter that where Lloyd said, look, Jerry, people aren't coming to this book for that. And I tried to make a connection there. But I, I think I'll write, I'm going to write, uh, I'm in, in the process of writing a freestanding uh, fictional essay uh, uh, on that subject for a, a major uh, international literary publication. So that should be coming out within the, within the coming months. And that's a lot of fun. It didn't belong in this book. She was right. So when so let's talk a little bit more about your writing life. Okay? So you were you were obviously using it within your profession and you were generate but what about the were you writing your mom there's a poem by your mom in this in your memoir? Yes. Um so were you also were you writing stories? Were you um using writing in other ways in your life? Uh, Occasionally I would write a story. I wrote a story about uh, the Picasso exhibit in 1979 in Paris. I was passing through Paris on my way back to New York from the Middle East and went to the exhibit and wrote a story about that and sent it to the New Yorker and got a call from them about it, which is unusual. I mean, it was nice. They loved it. They said they couldn't do it because they'd done a piece on Picasso. It was a nice call. Uh, uh, on that exhibit. They were doing a piece on that exhibit at the same time, but they liked mine and encouraged me to continue writing. But 
I was so busy as a lawyer, I, I couldn't. We should get back for a second to what happened when I went back to New York. I left the firm and went to work for Mobile Corporation as a lawyer, and Mobile gave people hearing tests as a matter of course because their chairman uh, became deaf as he was chairman. Maybe he was becoming deaf before then, but he had always been slated to be the guy to take over. And so they gave everybody a hearing test, and when I had mine, finally, with a nurse I call Miss Oracle, she asked me how my hearing was. I said it was great. Uh, that I passed a hearing test. I remembered the hearing test in the first grade. Uh, loud noises bothered me, uh, and I was very sensitive to them, uh, and that I was musical, so no, no problem. I stepped into the booth, and uh, I stepped out, and she said, okay, where are they? And I said, where are what? And she said, where are your earring days? And what she, it's a lyrical for hearing aids. And I said, what are you talking about? And she, she said, you pressed the button five times. I said, so what? She said, well, I rang 20 tones. So uh, she was very worried about that. She turned about as white as her sheet. She was very, very uh, sympathetic, simpatico, empathetic, I guess is the word I'm looking for. And, uh, but I did nothing about it for a whole year. I, did, I, didn't, you know, I just didn't take it seriously. She, she said she would check that I had taken the test but wouldn't give the scores to anybody. And, uh, but I finally began to look at, mobile was becoming very difficult. I finally began to follow the minutes very carefully of meetings I was at with the hearing notion and mind. Finally went to see a doctor, up, a local doctor up in Massachusetts who thought I had a brain tumor because it was all so sudden and in view of the life that I'd led, professional life. And I went down to, I wasn't ready for a neuro, neurologist though, or a neurosurgeon, so I went down to Columbia when I got back to New York three days later and went to see the head of ENT and we had a long session together and um, he figured out what was wrong and explained it to me. It was a very emotional moment. Uh, ultimately tracing the problem back to a childhood illness. And uh, that's when I got hearing aids. And when all those, um, all those beautiful sounds came, came back to me. Um, writing for me was something I always wanted to do, but except for that one story for, for, on the Picasso thing, I had not done much except, in, except uh, for legal writing uh, and in college and in high school before that. Uh, I think as what people must appreciate, many of us do know, the students may not be that aware of it, but your life as a, as a corporate lawyer doing mergers and acquisitions and privatizations and large transactions with billions of dollars involved leaves you very little room for a private life. So your hours are really basically 9.30 in the morning, which is a nice late start, until 1 or 2 in the morning. Uh, five or six, sometimes seven days a week. So there's really you can dream about writing, but you really can't do it where I found that it was a little easier at mobile, there was, there was more time. Uh, and that's when I found the time to write the Picasso story. Uh, so uh, getting the hearing aids uh, made my life easier. It made, enabled me to put, put uh, uh, it, it made those lyricals louder. It, it made some of those consonants audible, or at least the lips more readable, maybe because the vowels were more audible. Uh, but still, it's it's a lyrical exercise, even with hearing aids, as any as any partially deaf person will tell you. I put microphones on the table and would uh, use those as well, but they don't work very well because you have to put them in front of the person who's saying who's going to say the most important thing in the room, and you never know who that <laughs> <Right>. will be. <laughs> Um, but the beauty of hearing aids really is, uh, I mean, it enabled me to practice law for another 20 years, struggling, but, but at least knowing what the problem was. Two weeks after 
I got the hearing aids. My wife was able, able to, she was my girlfriend at the time, was able to throw all those pills away. And she said, you don't need them and, anymore. Yes, yes. And I didn't because uh, I knew what the problem was. And I think uh, one, of, one of the great perils of our lives is, is going through a period of time when you really, something is wrong, but you don't know what it is. And that's something that students should keep their eyes out for, because um, if you can identify the problem, I'm not saying you should go to a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, or whatever, but just think it through and see what's troubling you, what's making you happy, or what's making you sad. Um, and the, these doctors, all the doctors prescribing these pills couldn't figure it out. But two weeks after um, I got the hearing aids, no more pills. And that's, that's a bit of a miracle. Uh, I, it's a reality. I, I think uh, the unknown is, is a very disquieting factor. If you can eliminate, uh, eliminate if, if I had known what the source of those lyricals were, the source of that struggle was, the nature of the struggle wouldn't have changed very much, but the ulcers would have gone away sooner. Mm-hmm. And it's and and it being able to also accept it because when Miss when Nurse Oracle said it the first time, you weren't ready. You're like, she must be talking about somebody else. Oh, that's right. I was <laughs> but, a cool guy. I was perfectly healthy and not about to have anybody tell me I was deaf. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's those aren't the words I thought, but that's the emotion probably. Yes. Let's take a short break and we'll come back. Today on the program, Gerald Shea, his memoir, Song Without Words, Discovering My Deafness Halfway Through Life. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Gerald Shea is here. Song Without Words, Discovering My Deafness Halfway Through Life. His first book, um, and it's a memoir. And this is you on the cover, Jerry, as well. This is a picture of you as a, a young boy. And that's me at four years old, yes. Uh, uh, quite healthy, but looking very pensive. <laughs> Always a thoughtful, yes. a thoughtful boy. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for picking the music for today's show. No, I'm um, delighted to do it. What we just heard was the beginning of the overture from Traviata, and that very soft part that you heard right at the beginning before the full orchestra comes in is a part that I never heard until I got hearing aids. And, of course, it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's, it's an ethereal piece, much like the beginning of Lohengrin which, we, Lohengrin, which we heard earlier, which brings me to the thought that, excuse me, that... Um, that, that hearing aids do have a tremendous advantage uh, for the partially to provide a tremendous help uh, benefit, uh, spiritual benefit uh, and real benefit to the partially deaf in that they brought back, uh, bring to them as they brought back to me the high sounds of music, the violins and the flutes and the piccolos and those instruments that I never heard before, the introduction to Traviata and Lorgan too, but also the overtones and higher instruments in regular orchestral music, so that again, the uh, the the higher instruments took over the melody from the bass, and I was able to enjoy concerts and operas to the fullest. The tenors appeared, and the sopranos appeared in Wagner, and as I write in the book, uh, Peter rivals the wolf in Prokofiev, and there again I become a child again. I remember in our house in Millbrook, New York, which Claire and I rented, my wife and I rented, before we were married, uh, right after I got the hearing aids, um, I was out on a Friday night, uh, sitting out in the garden, having a, my Friday night gin and tonic, and I suddenly felt not alone. My hearing aids were in glasses at that point, and I put on the switches. I was out in a field, a field all over the place, except for the house right in front of us, just uh, very much in the country. And suddenly I heard crickets. I heard tens of thousands of crickets uh, coming from everywhere, north, south, east, and west. And it was a sound I'd not heard since I was a child. And it was uh, it brought me to tears, those crickets. Uh, and every time I hear them, I realize how lucky I am to to be able to hear them again and to hear that the high tones of music again. Uh, that, even though there is still a struggle with words, the 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 availability of the fullness of music to me uh, makes life uh, very much worth living. And you, you can see, I'm able to see here, Jerry, how much the music means to you. And, yes. and, to, think, and, and to think of those moments. I, with the, Although with I don't the, look in the mirror when I'm listening to it. <laughs> so I'll take your word for okay. it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, and reading your book, I, I must say, made me aware, again, of it, like, like the... Um, about being more aware of the hearing and as I was walking around in the woods or whatever it is where it's just being reminded again of what well what what sometimes then if that you that I might take for granted for example Mm -hmm. um and so but keen into it again to appreciate it and 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 not but I think what's also wonderful is in song without words you talk about the possibilities like for example of what the lyricals what how they can be a gift like how it can open up these possibilities or this different type of music or language that someone wouldn't have access to if if they were fully hearing or or that, so that's right. yes. um, so there are these other like these beautiful these experiences of beauty too yes. they're just dif- it's a different 
I, well, I wrote the book uh, not so much to tell a story, not not even to tell my story. I wrote it uh, because I wanted to write. I've always had, as I mentioned, this desire to write, even though I'd never had time to do it. I could only think about it for the most part and dream about it. And at last I decided that I'd done enough professionally uh, with, with the firm. Uh, I'd gone back to the firm after Mobile and practiced in Paris for several years. Uh, but then uh, the, the lyrical exercise... Uh, on and on and on and on and on. It's, there's a limit to what you can do. So I decided to stop. It was my decision, and I decided to write. Uh, and uh, I wrote this book, uh, as I say, not not so much to tell a story as to write about something that I knew and to write about it as beautifully as I could. So the book is really... The, the key to the book, I think, is... is is the writing more than the story, even though we're talking about deafness and lyricals and all of that. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of beauty in that. And if you set, if you sit down, uh, to write something, uh, beautiful and you know, a story, well, those ideas, uh, the ideas of the word itself, lyricals will come to you and your style of writing will come to you almost automatically. It's amazing how it happens. Uh, it's, it's, I think Michelangelo said that, when he carved his David, he took a huge block of stone, and he was simply trying to find the statue within the stone. And I think that when a writer uh, writes, at least when I write, you are always searching for words, a phrase, a word, a paragraph, a term, a section that's already there, and the your job is simply to find it. And when you work that way, as I think I always do, it's a great pleasure because it's like a tre treasure hunt and you feel in a sense less of a weight upon your shoulders because you know those words are out there and it, your task is not to create them but to find them. And how, what was the process like for you? Would you, because it seems like there was a large chunk of research because it was maybe this was also pursuing understanding yourself as, as well, like as you were learning about maybe the physics of hearing and the history of like the parts that you, some of the parts you said that you've taken out. Yes. Well, the history of the deaf, there's a lot of it in there and I can write about it almost offhandedly. There's a lot of it in the book that stayed in the book. Yes. There's a whole chapter on Helen Keller, for example, who was profoundly deaf. But the reason I got into that area was in, in trying to find sources about partial deafness. I was told in Paris for the great center of, of the of the, the great library for the profoundly deaf, the history of the profoundly deaf, is at Saint-Jacques, the, the National Institute for Deaf Children in Paris. Their library is fabulous. And librarians said, well, you can only find uh, what you're looking for about the partially deaf in the interstices, a word I took me, took me five lyricals to get to, in the, in the interstices of history of the profoundly deaf. And I found that history so, so interesting, so beautiful, so in many respects, so unbelievable and so difficult that I... I made an effort of of thinking about my own life and reading about the partially deaf, but also getting deeply into the history of the profoundly deaf. That's how I got there, and that's why um, we'll be saving that 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 history for another book. And and so for the writing of this book, Jerry, did you did you have sort of a like? Did you start? Would you try to sit down and write every day? Did you know that it was going to be? Because I know you said, I didn't want to tell my story necessarily. I mm -hmm. wanted to write a beautiful book. Um, but how did it, did you, well, when what you was the process? When you practice law, you develop a certain discipline because you have to keep track of your hours by, we did, I did by the 10th of the hour. 
uh, <laughs> every six minutes because lawyers are expensive. Um, and so I had this discipline behind me, and even today I'm writing other things now. Um, in fact, a story about Naples, but I won't get into that in great detail. Not not Florida, but Italy. Um, I start writing at 9.30 in the morning, and I take about, on an average weekday, I take a break of 20 minutes for lunch at around 1, and then I continue writing uh, subject to things like opening mail and, and paying bills uh, from about quarter of two until uh, seven o'clock at night. So my hours is just as bad as they always were as a lawyer, uh, except that it's, uh, I have a lot more independence. And for me, particularly because of my, uh, my hearing, it's a lot more fun. Although I did love the practice of law, despite the difficulties. Writing is really my love, though, and I think it, I've found my, my truer vocation. And I'm lucky to have found it. And so we can look forward to seeing some more from yes. Jerry Shea. Absolutely. There's great interest in this in this book I want to write about, I'm going to write about. Naples will have the deaf history coming out before too long. There's the, the, the erotic chapter I mentioned. It will be coming out as, as a fictional piece uh, in an international uh, literary review. And also probably a Christmas story that will that'll probably come out in the fall of... Uh, Two fifteen in the fall of two fifteen. But the book I'm really looking forward to writing is a book about a child, a very special child, growing up uh, into adulthood uh, in in Naples. Well, wonderful. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for talking with me today and being being on the program. Thank you very much, T. It's been a great pleasure. Well, come back. I shall. Okay. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers today. Thanks to Tex for engineering. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. Um, Song Without Words, Discovering My Deafness Halfway Through Life by Gerald Shea. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
will pull the goalie now. Six on four for the Wolverines. Held in by Patterson. It comes now for Wahlberg. He plays it cross ice for Moffey. Moffey gets it down low. Oh, look at this! He Back to the point for Moffey. Gets the Michigan State player to dive down. Michigan with the advantage here. And Michigan scores! They win the Great Lakes Invitational! You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN FM. All right. Well, that was a really strange <laughs> end to that intro. I guess we had some uh, computer issues uh, here. But in any case, you're listening to 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and this is the Daily Sports Report. Uh, my name is Mike Lewandowski. I will be your host uh, for this Wednesday evening uh, edition of the Daily Sports Report. I'm joined on the other side of the glass by Chris Banner and uh, Morris Fabry. And guys, uh, we have one uh, big game that we want to talk about here for uh, the Michigan Wolverines basketball team. We've been talking about uh, the stretch that they're in for the entire season. We've been leading up to it, and uh, when it started against Wisconsin uh, this past weekend in Michigan,